And just like that, we are back for another exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petros Katupis. Today's episode is going to be an interesting one. It is the second in my Bible-focused subseries. I will be discussing the primeval history found in the book of Genesis of the Old Testament Bible. That is, the events of our paradisical location known as Eden, all the way to the Tower of Babel. We're talking about the first 11 chapters. I love these stories, and I say stories in the plural for a reason, because they are written as sort of micro-episodes that were eventually woven together by the ancient scribe. Which reminds me, it would be extremely beneficial to revisit the first podcast recording in the subseries, which is episode 11. It discusses the authorship of these uh, Old Testament books. In that episode, I provide details to various thoughts and approaches on biblical authorship. One of those being the documentary hypothesis, which proposes the idea that the Bible was written by separate authors, sometimes in historical stages, and eventually all separate components were compiled together either during or after the exilic period, that is, during the 6th century BCE or after. These four separate sources are commonly referred to as the Elohist, or E, the Yahwist, or J, the Priestly, or P, and finally the Deuteronomist, or D. I mention this because under the lens of this hypothesis, the vast majority of the primeval history is believed to have been penned by the Yahwist. Again, that is J, with a sprinkling of P here and there. Well, that doesn't sound right. This is an important detail to know. And in the newsletter that will uh, accompany this episode, I will highlight which portions are credited to J and which are credited to P. By the end of this episode, you will notice that J was influenced greatly by the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and its author and his or her writings were clearly the work of propaganda. Yes, you heard that correctly. I said, or her. There are theories out there which do claim that Jay was a female author. As much as I would like to get more into that, it is beyond the scope of this episode, and therefore, we'll need to wait for another time. Also note how I said the work of propaganda. If you have been listening to my previous episodes, this is not the first time that I have said such a thing. You may recall the infamous work of Virgil, the Aeneid, and how it was written to legitimize an Augustan rule. We have something similar here with Jay, and we even see it as early as the writings of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Oh, before I forget, it is generally believed that Jay dates to approximately 950 BCE and P, the 5th century BCE. Although many do place this scribe or set of scribes to the end of the 6th century BCE, that is in reference to P. Anyway, let us go on our journey to the world of the Bible. You would think that chapter 1 would be the start of our journey, but it isn't. Chapter 1 is credited to P in rights of the creation of the world all the way to the creation of man, which is 
inconsistent with the creation of man, that is, both Adam and Eve, in J's chapter 2. Why, you ask? Well, a lot of scholarship has gone into this, most of which I share in podcast episode 11, but what it boils down to is grammar, word usage, style, structure, spelling, and more. This creation chapter was a later addition to the book of Genesis, what the Hebrews and modern Jews refer to as Sefer Bereshit, or the book, technically scroll of in the beginning. There weren't bound books back then. Everything that was not chiseled into stone was typically written on uh, papyrus or animal skin and rolled into a scroll. Okay, chapter two, and technically three. Not only because we have the creation of the first man and woman, but also the mention of a paradise location known as the Garden of Eden. There is nothing special about how Adam and Eve came into existence, as it parallels the creation of man myths found in uh, other Near Eastern cultures. Humans were fashioned out of clay or dirt, or something similar by the gods. What I am more interested in is the location of Eden and its meaning. For centuries and more, scholars have attempted to pinpoint this location. Is it Dilmun on the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf? Because Dilmun was the ancient Sumerian paradise. Other theories have suggested South America, which seemed kind of crazy among many other locations. But I am here to tell you that Eden was real. It was a real location. And why do I know that? Because it existed during the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But before I share the details, let us take a step back for a moment. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read of a garden set to the east, trees and animals aplenty, which a river flowed through and parted into four, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. The Septuagint, which is the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, confirms the translations of the Tigris and Euphrates, although the Pishon and the Gihon continue to remain a mystery. The identification of the two rivers have led many to look to Mesopotamia, and more recently the submerged regions of the Persian Gulf, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. What is obvious is that geography was not the author's strongest feature. For instance, we know where both the Tigris and Euphrates meet in the southern Mesopotamia and where the rivers flow to in uh, the north and northwest. As for the river Gihon, a literal reading of Genesis chapter 2, verse 13, from the Hebrew source translates to, And the name of the second is the river Gihon. It circles around all the land of Cush. We clearly read that the Gihon flowed from the Persian Gulf, and parted to circle Cush. According to Hebrew and Assyrian sources, Cush is identified as Ethiopia. Yes, the very same Ethiopia that resides on the separate continent of Africa. For this reason, many have identified the river Nile with the Gihon, although such an identification would invalidate the original statement in that it parted alongside three others from the same river. Coincidentally, the first book of Kings, chapter 1, verse 33, mentions a spring near Jerusalem by the name of Gihon. 
The Hebrew name translates to bursting forth, a generic term that could describe just about anything. When we read beyond the book of Genesis, we do find additional references to Eden. In the book of Isaiah 37, 12, have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezeph, and the children of Eden which were in Telassar. Ezekiel 27.23 Haran and Cana and Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Asher and Kilmad, were thy merchants. Ezekiel 31.16 I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall, when I cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, shall be comforted in neither parts of the earth. Does this mean that a place named Eden was still around at the time the book of Ezekiel was written in the 6th century BCE? Isaiah, who is dated to either the 8th or 7th centuries BCE, speaks of the children of Eden as a nation that still existed, while Ezekiel hints at Eden being a merchant town. It is listed along with other locations situated in northern Mesopotamia, southern Anatolia, and the northern Levant. Does this hint at Eden being located somewhere within this general area? When we reread Ezekiel 31.16, we observe the verse confirming that Eden is in the land of Lebanon, a region well-renowned for its cedars. Discovered at Tel al-Fakhiria, on one of the tributaries of the Kabur River in Syria in 1979 was a statue of a man containing a bilingual inscription. Dating to approximately the late 9th century BCE, the statue provides the oldest evidence of the Aramaic language. Written on the skirt of the man, the bilingual inscription was inscribed in Assyrian cuneiform and the Semitic linear alphabet in an Aramaic dialect. It is this bilingual text that holds the key to the earliest identification and interpretation of the word Eden. Used as a verb, Eden corresponds to the Assyrian verb for wealth or luxuriance. This translation reinforces the idea of a paradise behind the Genesis narrative. Despite this extraordinary discovery, Assyrian sources provide more clues to the location of Eden. Assyrian records have revealed the identification of an Aramean state that thrived between the 10th to 9th centuries BCE. The name of this kingdom was Bit Adini, or the House of Eden, and its capital was centered at Tilbarsit, which is modern-day Telamar. Bit Adini would be conquered and absorbed into the Neo-Assyrian Empire in around 856 BCE, during the reign of Shalmaneser III who reigned between 859 to 824 BCE. Located in Syria, Tilbarsip was situated along the Euphrates River. It is now that these cryptic passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah and the general location of Eden are coming together. The book of Isaiah sheds light on the outcome of the people who inhabited Eden as was the outcome of many nations who opposed the Assyrians and the later Babylonians, the conquered would be exiled to the furthest reaches of the empire. In the early 9th century BCE, an Aramean coalition was formed which opposed the Assyrian war machine. Ashurnasir Paul, who reigned between 883 to 859 BC, would quell this rebellion until his son Shalmaneser conquered and absorbed the region. 
During this period, people would have been exiled, and Assyrian citizens would resettle in the newly conquered territories. The Edenites, alongside the people of Haran, Gozan, Rezef, were transported to Telassar. Translating to Assyrian hill, Telassar was a city conquered and held by the Assyrians. Written in the Assyrian and Babylonian chronicles as Tilasuri, it has been identified with Bit-Burnaki, also written as Bit-Bunaku in Elam, to the east of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iran. Now, how does this relate to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis? I, for one, believe that the narrative is an allegorical one. And as I hinted earlier in this episode, possibly intended as propaganda, it was inspired by the Assyrian expansion and the many people exiled to never return to their homeland, such as Adam and Eve's expulsion to the east. What may confirm this claim is a verse found in Genesis 3.24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. After becoming part of the Assyrian Empire, the once capital of the Edenites, Tilbarsip, was Assyrianized. It was once decorated with beautiful art consisting of rosettes, royal processions, hunting scenes, to even the Lamassu. The Lamassu, also referred to as a Shedu and the Akkadian Kuribu, was a divinity with the head of a man and the body of a bull. They typically stood as guardians, uh, usually in the king's palace and throne room. These Lamassu are one and the same as the Hebrew Cherubim, correctly pronounced as Cherubim. While a common piece of decoration in Levantine art, it was more commonplace within Assyrian and Babylonian cultures. The stationing of the cherubim as guards to the garden may be symbolic of the Assyrian influence and occupation of Tilbarsip. How should we interpret the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life? Mystical trees are not uncommon to Assyrian imagery. This includes a very well-known relief with Ashur Paul flanking both sides of the Tree of Life. As for the garden itself, I am reminded of uh, the recently published articles claiming the Hanging Gardens of Babylon to actually be located to the north in Nineveh, a once uh, Assyrian capital and constructed during the reign of Sennacherib, who reigned between 705 to 681 BCE. Apparently, Assyrians loved their gardens, and honestly, they were not the only ones. Fun fact, every time I go to the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, formerly known as the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago, when you open the doors to the entrance of the museum, at the far back of the museum, you see one of the most beautiful Lamassu statues that was taken from Der Sharukin, which was the capital of Sargon II. It is a sight that I just takes your breath away, and it continues to do so every single time I visit this museum. Moving on. It is the very beginning of chapter 6 where things start to get really interesting. Here is where we find the Nephilim, a topic which I have been interested in for at least, oh, I don't know, maybe almost two and a half decades now. For millennia, we as a people have been fascinated by them, even though they are mentioned twice within the pages of the Old Testament. Twice! 
once in the book of Genesis, and again, once in the book of Numbers. That isn't very much to work with, and yet here we are dedicating books, articles, movies to them. That being the case, we know absolutely nothing of them. So, who were the Nephilim? In order to answer that, we will need to look at uh, the book of Genesis. I will read an excerpt from Genesis 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The same were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. The story then cuts out. That is, we stop reading about the sons of God and the Nephilim. And the book of Genesis begins to talk about the wickedness of man, which is the start of the flood story. There is no connection between the two, at least not in the book of Genesis. Later books, such as the book of Enoch and even the book of Giants found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, will redefine the narrative. But it's for the uh, supposed earliest reference we have here, nope. But until then, there is no connection between the Nephilim and the wickedness of man. Going back to what we find in the book of Genesis, though, there are a few key takeaways from the verse I just read, which I wish to highlight. The Nephilim are the product of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They were on the earth in those days, and also after that, they were the mighty men of renown. Now, let us dive into these takeaways, but in more detail. The Nephilim are the product of the sons of God and the daughters of men. What does that even mean? In the general Near East, long before the verses were written to scroll and even after, nearby cultures believed in mythologies that carried the same themes. That is, the existence of demigods, or I should say, children from gods mating with humans. Aeneas was the son of Anchises and the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, who was Venus in uh, Roman culture. Romulus and Remus were both children of uh, the Roman war god, Mars, and the Vestal Virgin, Rhea. Both Heracles and Perseus, the son of Zeus, and a separate human mother, Gilgamesh, the son of the very human king, Lugalbanda, and the Mesopotamian goddess, Ninsun. Note the mention of uh, Gilgamesh. I will return to him shortly. Demigods were a common theme throughout the ancient world, even the concept of sons of God. I won't get into the details on whether the original Hebrews were polytheistic or henotheistic or anything else, but I will say that throughout the entire Old Testament, many verses are dedicated to the idea that God often spoke to an assembly, an entire assembly of gods. Not angels, but gods, lesser deities. Again, a common theme we constantly find in other ancient and neighboring cultures. I already mentioned the Greeks and the Romans, but we also have the Assyrians and Babylonians of ancient Mesopotamia to even the Ugarites of ancient Syria, the Hittites of Anatolia, and more. Another good example worth mentioning is in ancient Canaanite culture, Dagon was viewed as the father of the gods an equivalent, if not the same, as the Canaanite deity El. Anyway, father of the gods. That means his children were uh, referred to as the sons of God, who likely had offspring of their own, some of which may have been hybrid God and human. Now, let us shift focus to the bit about they were on the earth in those days and also after that. After that? After what? The flood? I'm going to confidently say yes, 
And I say yes primarily because of what we see in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verse 33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come of the Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. After their departure from Egypt, you know, following the events of the Exodus, the Israelites were wandering the wilderness toward what will eventually be the promised land. During this time, there is an event in the story where some Israelite scouts spot some Nephilim. So it would seem that the Nephilim survived the flood and continued to inhabit and populate the land. Which brings me to our third key takeaway, the one where the Nephilim were mighty men of renown. It will help if I share the Hebrew form to show you that there is no misunderstanding of this part of the verse. The more literal translation being the mighty ones who, from old, men of name. Hagiburim translating to the mighty ones or the great ones in Anashe Hashem or men, that is the collective men of name. That is, they were famous men, but famous for what? I'm instantly reminded of uh, Hesiod's Age of Heroes of Greek mythology in his Theogony. Could the book of Genesis be touching on a mythical age of heroes where these Nephilim were demigods and hero men that did wonderful and fantastical deeds? Surely these heroic and famous Nephilim cannot be the root cause of evil as we find in later biblical writings. Enough so to warrant a cleansing of the land by the form of a flood. What I find the most interesting, though, is the fact that the book of Giants mentions the Mesopotamian demigod. Gilgamesh as one of the Nephilim. Yes, he was recognized by ancient biblical writers as one of the giants. And who would have thought that I have a, an actual statue of a Nephilim in my office this entire time? Right now, I'm awkwardly pointing to a statue of Gilgamesh that is sitting on a bookshelf behind me, which you cannot see. So, if you'd like to see what a Nephilim would have looked like in the minds of the ancient biblical author, look no further than Gilgamesh. Now, how did we get here? Why did later authors think otherwise? I don't know. All I can say is that by the 2nd century BCE, this heroic past to the Nephilim is completely forgotten, as they are cast as these giant flesh-eating and blood-drinking monsters. At least that is what we see in the non-canonical books. Now let us revisit our original question. Who were the Nephilim? Well, it seems like there were a race of demigods who were once considered mighty heroes in a now lost biblical age of heroes. Then there was the flood and the story of Noah, with the eventual repopulation of the planet encompassing the rest of chapter 6 all the way to chapter 10. Similar to the creation stories, the flood stories were way too common in the ancient world. In ancient Mesopotamia alone, we find flood heroes as Zilsudra, Atrahashis, and the infamous Utnapishtim of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the last two of which we find in the tablets discovered at the palace of the Assyrian monarch Ashurbanipal at the Assyrian site of Nineveh. What makes the biblical version interesting, though, is the blatant fusing of two separate stories, one from J and the other from P. As a result, we find duplication, contradictions, and repetition of texts, which do not make a whole lot of sense. And this isn't a recent criticism either. Scholars going as far back as possibly the, the medieval ages 
may maybe even earlier have uh, noticed this. Although, you know, don't quote me on that. I need to dig up a source to that exact comment. So what is one contradiction? P states that God commands Noah to gather one pair of each animal and load them onto the ship, while J needs to gather seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. Oh, also, to P, the flood lasts for 150 days, while to J, 40 days and nights. P lets a raven go to determine if there was a place for it to perch or if it will come back, while J twice and separately lets a dove go, the second time of which it never comes back. As for repetitions, twice God mentions the wickedness of humans, and again, twice God tells Noah that he will cleanse the earth by wiping it uh, of all life. Also twice we read of Noah's fulfilling God's command, and again, twice, Noah's family boards the ark. The flood starts twice. The animals get on the ark twice. The floodwaters lift the ark twice. All life is wiped from the land twice. Noah's three sons are introduced twice. I mean, come on. All of a sudden, I am reminded of the 1990 Martin Scorsese film, Goodfellas, and the briefly shown character, Jimmy Two Times, who has this one line that I will never forget. I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. Another interesting tidbit worth noting is that when the Ark finally settled, it did so on the mountains of Ararat. This is one and the same as the ancient region of Urartu. And the Iron Age kingdom of Urartu had a very contentious and mostly violent history with the Neo-Assyrians to the south of them. Again, everything continues to point to the ancient Neo-Assyrians. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, in chapters 6 through 10, the Hebrew god Yahweh is essentially a flood god, sort of comparable to the Bronze Age Ugaritic and general Canaanite Baal Hadad. But what many do not know is that the royal annals of the Assyrian king Ashurnasir Paul II, again, who ruled during the 9th century BCE, there is a curious deity referenced multiple times. Written in cuneiform, this deity was referred to as Yav. We read passages such as, in honor of Asher. Asher was the nation's um, state god, you know, the, the Assyrian national god. So let me repeat that. In honor of Asher, the sun god, and Yav. Or, on two days before sunrise, like Yav, the inundator, I rushed upon him. Wait, what? Yav the inundator, a flood god named Yav, worshipped by the Assyrians at the same time the Israelites and Judahites worshipped Yahweh, who has a track record of flooding things. What else? Yav the great ruler of heaven and earth. The list goes on, but it is important to note that while the god of gods in the Assyrian pantheon is Asher, as Marduk was to the Babylonians, Yahweh to the Israelites, Kaldi to the Urartu civilization, the Assyrians never hesitated to adopt external deities and admit them to, into their own pantheon and placing their statues usually obtained after sacking opposing nations within their temples. In chapter 10, the land is repopulated and we are now introduced to Nimrod. Nimrod was an interesting character. 
And he is very briefly mentioned, starting with chapter 10, verse 8, and going all the way to verse 12. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Wherefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalnet in the land of Shinar. Out of the land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and Rehobothir and Kalach. And resin between Nineveh and Kalach, the same as the great city. And our clues here are, his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalnet in the land of Shinar. We know the locations of Babel and Erech, or I should say Uruk, both of which are located in Mesopotamia. Then there is Akkad. While we do not know the exact location of this now lost capital to the ancient Akkadian Empire, which dated to approximately 4,300 years ago, we do know that it too was located in Mesopotamia. But what of Kalneh? Modern scholars, including myself, have identified Kalneh with the northern Levantine city-state of Kulani or Kulnia. Kulnia was not included within the Assyrian Empire until after the expansion and campaigns of both Ashurnasir Paul, again who reigned between 883 to 859 BCE, and Shalmaneser III, who again reigned from 858 to 824 BCE. Our next clue. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and Rehobothir and Kalach, and resin between Nineveh and Kalach, the same is the great city. The kingdom of Asher, or Assyria, came out of this land. Does that mean that there is a correlation between Nimrod and the land of Asher? Anyway, he built Nineveh, which we have already discovered and identified. Rehobothir and Rezin are still unknown uh, locations, but Kalach isn't. It is to be identified with the Neo-Assyrian once capital city of Kalnet. This is to be identified with the modern site and palace of Nimrud. A few things to know here. The site of Kalneh was founded by the Assyrian king Shalmaneser I in the 13th century BCE and gained fame when King Ashurnasir Paul II of Assyria made it his capital. He built a large palace and temples on the site of Shalmaneser's earlier city that had long fallen into ruins. Further down the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the capital had moved from Kalhu to Dursharukin, or the Fortress of Sargon, during the reign of Sargon II in 722 to 705 BCE, finally stopping at Nineveh, an already ancient city under the direction of Sennacherib in 705 to 681 BCE. Now our last clue. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. What does that even mean? I'm not entirely sure, but I will say this. In his palace at Kalhu, Ashurnasir Paul II commissioned beautiful carved reliefs of him as a great hunter of animals. I'm sure that anyone witnessing this would have been in awe and inspired to tell tales of such things. Is there a connection here? Maybe. But part of me also wants to briefly mention the similarities in the name Nimrod and the site of literally the same name, Nimrud. Again, that is Kalhu. In much, much later Arab tradition, the site earned its name after the famous biblical hunter. I wonder why. Could it be that later explorers found the same hunting reliefs that I speak of, or does the tradition go further back in time and its reasons for its origins have become lost to us today? What irritates me, though, is that much like the Nephilim being blamed for the wickedness of man, 
Nimrod in later years would be blamed for coercing all nations to settle in the land of Shinar and build uh, the Tower of Babel. There is no direct connection between Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, at least not in the book of Genesis. Much later authors, though, will believe otherwise. And finally, we reach the events of the Tower of Babel. The story of the construction of a tower in Babel, which resulted in the confounding of language, has perplexed modern scholars for decades. The book of Genesis tells of a time in which all of the world's population migrated eastward to the plain of Shinar. Shinar, which is the Hebrew word for land of the two rivers, is considered by most to be what the Akkadians referred to as Shumer or Sumer, known today as Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. The Hebrew etymology is most likely referring to the rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates. In fear of being scattered across the whole face of the earth, the inhabitants of the plain decided to build a city and also a tower to reach the heavens. The city would be referred to as Babel, which in Akkadian is Babili, or the gate of God, which was also a play on the Hebrew word Balal, or to confuse you know, as in confuse the language. According to the Old Testament, man was then punished for building this Tower of Babel through the creation of languages designed to create division amongst mankind. In Genesis 11, we read, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make brick and burned them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city, and a tower, with its top in heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered across upon the face of the earth. And Yahweh came down to the city and the tower which the children of men builded, and Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing will be withholden from them, which they purpose to do. Come, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore was the name of it called Babel, because Yahweh did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. While most of us are familiar with the Hebrew account of the dispersal of peoples and the introduction of new languages, archaeology has shown that the concept of spreading of tongues is not unique as we believe. We must divert our attention to George Smith, the very same George Smith who first translated the Epic of Gilgamesh in the 19th century and provided the world with the earliest documented reference to the Great Flood starring Utnapishtim. Following his translation of Gilgamesh, Smith was sent to the site of Nineveh, where he was to continue excavations in the hopes of unearthing additional inscriptions that paralleled or showed some relation to the Old Testament. Archaeology at the time was a new science, founded on validating the writings of the Bible. Smith was fortunate in that the excavations did yield additional tablets from the Royal Library of Ashurbanipal. And upon further research, he did actually discover a story likely to have inspired the, the biblical account of the Tower of Babel. 
cataloged and hidden in the inventory vaults of the British Museum, the fragmentary piece of text reads as follows. The father of him, his heart was evil, against the father of all the gods, and was wicked. Of him his heart was evil. Babylon brought to subjection. Small and great he confounded their speech. Babylon brought to subjection. Small and great he confounded their speech. Their strong place or tower all the day they found it. To their strong place in the night entirely he made an end. In his anger also word thus he poured out. To scatter abroad he set his face. He gave this. Command their counsel was confused. The course he broke, fixed the sanctuary. George Smith provided a commentary to his translation, briefly summarizing what the inscription meant to him, along with highlighting key words that emphasize the type of construction that took place. We have the anger of the gods at the sin of the world, the place mentioned being Babylon. The building or work is called Tazimat or Tazimtu, a word meaning strong, and there is a curious relation lines 9 through 11, that what they built in the day, the God destroyed in the night. Key parallels are seen between the biblical and Assyrian accounts, that is, that they both speak of mankind unified by a single language and building a tower, thus angering the gods, which resulted in the confusion of the language. The Assyrian account of the Tower of Babel, much like the other tablets found in the same collection, are most likely copies of older tablets. And on multiple occasions, I have reached out to the British Museum for more information on this tablet, and on each time, I was met with silence. Propaganda. I keep mentioning this word. Jay clearly had a message to relay to its audience, but what was that message? Was it related to accepting their fates under Assyrian rule? Jay is believed to have lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you were to ask me, I would refine the dating for this author and place them to the time of the 14th king of the kingdom of Judah, Manasseh, who reigned between 687 to 643 BCE. He is mentioned in the Assyrian records as a contemporary to the Assyrian king Esharadan and is named as one of the vassals who assisted in the Neo-Assyrian campaigns against Egypt. The author of the books of Kings did not paint him in the most favorable light, and in the books of Chronicles, we get a different story. Either way, the archaeological record alongside the Assyrian records suggests that during Manasseh's reign, Judah was in a period of stability. According to archaeologists Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Sieberman, Manasseh is credited with reviving Judah's rural economy, likely with the aid of Assyria, to stimulate an export market. We are talking about olive oil production. These trade routes needed to be protected, so Judah needed Assyria to protect them, and in order to do that, they would need to pledge their loyalty to the Assyrian monarch. Maybe this is why the author of Kings portrayed Manasseh as a betrayer of its peoples and abandoning the ways of Yahweh. The people of Judah, who did not necessarily benefit from these deal makings, would have not been very happy, creating some sort of civil unrest. So then, what happens when your subjects start to turn on you? Well, you rewrite history. That is sort of what Virgil did many centuries later. You just tell them that. God says it's okay. 
and that we should accept our Assyrian overlords. Here's the thing. There is more. I only covered the primeval portion of Genesis. We still have the whole patriarchal history to get through and the rest of the five books that make up the Pentateuch. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.